Welcome to Parkview. Uh, I'll say it one more time. If you've got any room, scoot in because we've still got some people coming in. We're really glad to have you here. Uh, glad that you gave up some time out of this beautiful weekend to come and hang out a little bit with us. Glad that you uh, gave up on your brackets and just decided to come because they're all screwed up now. Am I right? Anybody still got a decent bracket out there for March Madness? You're a liar. Okay, I know you. You're a liar. You're a Syracuse guy. You're a liar. That's all I know. Um, it, it, it's been a fun, uh, fun, fun weekend for me to get a chance to know John Ortberg. Uh, John is one of my uh, theological heroes. It, it, you, you've heard me quote from him a lot because whenever I've got a topic that I'm a little unsure of, whenever there's something that I, you know, I just need some help, the very first thing I do is I go to John Ortberg's sermons, whether they were from Willow back in the day when he was there or out of Menlo Park, and I try to find out what he has processed on that subject because he is somebody that I really look up to as a, as a theological mentor, even though I'd not met him, not met him until yesterday. Uh, he's been a theological mentor for me, and as a pastor, that's been really, really important. So I've been wanting for about three years to get John in, and we finally were able to to coerce him to come um, back from California, back to Chicago where he used to be and hang out with us for a little while. And I just want you to, uh, I want you to get a chance to know him. One of the reasons that we've got him here is because uh, he was one of the architects of the Monby project. And we've been talking a lot about Monby around here. It's our spiritual development tool that we're using to try to help people grow in their spiritual life. And what we found out is that everybody doesn't grow the same way. Everybody's not a cookie-cutter Christian. And so you need to go through a little development tool to kind of find out who you are and how you grow. And he was one of the architects in that. So he's going to kind of describe that a little bit to you as well today uh, as you get a chance to hear him. And, and hopefully it will give you a chance to figure out why you need to grow. And it's also going to give you a chance to relax in your spiritual life uh, as he explains grace to you in a way you probably never heard it. So uh, but without preaching his sermon, why don't you just let me welcome John Orper. Hey, see you, buddy. Thanks very much, man. It's been great being here. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Well, thank you very much. It is um, fabulous to be here. It's been wonderful to spend some time with Tim and other folks of the team and see what God is doing in this church. Uh, it was kind of interesting to me to hear people talk about what a beautiful weekend it's been. Because uh, I've been living in California for the last seven and a half years. And our worst day is better than today. Uh, it just was kind of a reminder to me that this is a stupid place to live. Uh, uh, people keep applauding at that, and I can't figure out why. Um, but God's just doing really cool things here at this church, and um honored to get to be with you for a few moments today and to talk about what God wants to do in your life. We all have these dreams about the life we want to live and the people that we want to become. And we know that they're connected with God, but we don't always know how. And sometimes we make God small or we make our spiritual lives something that's kind of put off in this little box over here instead of it being connected with everything. So what I want to talk with you about is that person that you most want to become in your best self and how that can lead you to God and how God can be involved in leading that process. I'll do that by making some observations about spiritual life. And the first one is this, there is a God and it is not you. And you want to take that with you. So turn to the person next to you real fast right now. Just say, there is a God. It is not you. Would you? And part of what that means is 
Part of what that means is that your life is not your project. Your life is God's project. This is what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. Paul says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, you are not your handiwork. Your life is not mainly your project. Your life is God's project. God thought you up. God created you. God designed you. God had the idea for you. And that means only God knows what your life can and should look like. Only God knows. We get all heated up about potential. Only God knows what your full potential is. And God is more concerned with you reaching your full potential than you are. God has a best version of you in mind. And God is working to shape that all the time. Not just when you come to church, not just when you pray, not just when you think about Him. God is working on shaping you. God is wanting to every moment of the day. Okay? But, 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 we live with a kind of a gap. We live in a gap between that person that I want to be, that God wants me to be, and who I am right now. We all have these dreams of the life that we'd like to lead, but we find ourselves not leading them. Some time ago, my wife and I were on a long plane ride back when we had just two children, and they were real small, like three and one and a half. And it was not fun being near us. We had taken over the last row of the plane because nobody wanted to be around us because it didn't look pretty. It didn't smell pretty. It was dirty diapers and crackers and spilt milk and crumbs and... And um, you know you're in trouble when the flight attendant comes and asks, would you mind if your children played outside? And we're wondering, why do we bring these kids with us on this trip? Why do we have these kids in the first place? Until a guy a couple rows in front of me looked back and surveyed the damage of our own and said to me, are those your two kids? And I thought about it for a moment. And I said, yes, they are. And he said, my wife and I would give anything in the world to have two kids. I said, you don't have any kids? He said, no, we have five kids. We'd give anything in the world. <laughs> and, you know, it struck me how all of us, we have these desires about we want to be wonderful people and friends and, and do great work and, and be parts of great families, great neighborhoods. But we just find ourselves not quite becoming that person starts with this realization. There is a God, and that is not you. And therefore, you don't have to... Your life's about something way bigger than your life. And you really don't have to worry about what your resume is going to look like or what you achieve. The most important thing that's going on is you're becoming a certain kind of person. And that's what will go into eternity. Next observation is that this process of growth, of change, transformation, transformation takes at least as much grace as salvation does. Let's talk about grace for a moment. Transformation, spiritual change or growth, requires grace. Uh, for a lot of us, when we come to understand the gospel... It kind of works like this. I, I realize that there is a God and he is holy and just and perfect. And then there's me and I'm messed up. And so there's this gap between a holy, perfect God and me. And that gap is caused by sin. And a lot of people have this idea that, you know, I'm supposed to try to 
earn my way into God's good favor and give enough, do enough, then you come to learn that I can never earn my way to God. I need Jesus. I need grace. And that's good news. I can just ask God for forgiveness. And a lot of you learned about that right here at this church. And for some of you, if you haven't known that, if you've been trying to earn your way into God's approval, you know, you need to know the reason Jesus lived and taught and died on a cross and was resurrected was to give to us the free gift of forgiveness. And you can just confess your sin and ask him for it. And he'll give you that right now. That's good news. I'm still left with kind of a gap. Only now the gap is between me as I currently live my life and the me I want to be, the me that God created me to be, me 2.0, if you want to think about it that way, kind of the upgraded version. And this gap is still caused by sin. And the problem a lot of people have is they think this gap I do have to overcome by my own direct effort. And so people will say to themselves, well, yes, I became a Christian by grace, but now I still got this sin gap between who I am right now and who God wants me to be. And they think I have to close this gap by my direct efforts. So they think they're just not being heroic enough in their spiritual life. I'll read another book. I'll listen to another talk. I'll learn some new disciplines. I will work harder. I will give more. You hear about somebody else that gets up at four o'clock in the morning to pray. And you feel guilty because you know you don't pray enough. So you say, I'm going to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to pray, even though you are not a morning person. Even though at 4 o'clock in the morning you are dazed and confused and groggy and grumpy. And the reality is nobody wants to be around you at 4 o'clock in the morning. Even Jesus doesn't really want to be around you at 4 o'clock in the morning. But you say, well, it's hard work and it'll make me feel miserable and it's severe. So it must be spiritual. It must be God's will for my life. And here's the kind of cycle that happens for an awful lot of people. They feel guilty about this little thing called their spiritual life or their spiritual walk. They hear somebody else talk about the things that that person does to grow spiritually, and they think, well, i got to try harder to do that stuff in my life. And so for a while you do try harder, but then when that doesn't help you very much, because that helps somebody else, may not help you, after a while you just start to feel tired. Because you feel like I'm trying to do all this stuff on top of my life. And it's too much. And so after you feel tired enough, eventually you just quit doing that stuff. And at first that feels like kind of a relief. But then you keep going back to church and hearing messages. And after a while, you start to feel guilty again. Anybody ever experience any cycle like this in your spiritual life? It just kills people. So what if there's another way? What if you were made... Not just to be forgiven by grace, but to live by grace. And that leads to the next point that I want to make. Transformation, growth, requires as much grace as forgiveness does. And then the next observation is living in grace is something you can learn. Living in grace is something you can learn. A lot of people get kind of confused. This happens a lot in churches we restrict grace to just the forgiveness of sins. A lot of people, when they hear the word grace, what they think of is forgiveness of sins. It's real important. Grace includes the forgiveness of our sins. But grace is really important. 
Grace is bigger than the forgiveness of sins. God was a gracious God before anybody ever sinned. Grace did not start with sin. Creation is an act of grace. You were intended to live by grace. And the main way you experience God's grace is God's power at work in you to do what you cannot do yourself. You were meant to wake up in the morning and have that first moment. Instead of it be burdened by worry or all that I have to do or my own sense of inadequacy, to have waking up be a moment of grace. And then when you greet somebody first thing in the morning, do you need grace for that? Yeah, you do. See, you were meant not just to be forgiven by grace, but to work in grace. And to relate to people with grace flowing through you. I love the way a guy by the name of Dallas Willard puts it. We often think of grace as something that's just needed by people that sin. You just need grace when you're sinning to be forgiven. The reality is you're intended to live by grace and to grow in your ability to do this. This is why Paul says grow in grace. The reality is that saints... And I don't mean self-righteous people. I mean people who are really deep now into God, who are really coming alive. What saints have learned is to run, to live on grace. Dallas says, saints burn more grace than sinners ever could. See, we think sinners are the ones that are using up a lot of grace. No, saints use up way more grace than sinners do. Saints run on grace the way a rocket ship runs on jet fuel. And that's how you are meant to live. Now, Jesus talks about this a lot. We're going to look at one of his statements. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. This is what Jesus says. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. What does it mean to be thirsty? And in the Bible, to be thirsty means to be driven by unsatisfied desires. To be frustrated with your life. To be dissatisfied because you're not reaching your potential. To, to complain, to whine. Do we have any whiners here today? Well, if that's you, Jesus says, then you're a candidate for me. You whiners. You dissatisfied people. So we have to understand what he's saying. And that's, that's anybody who's thirsty. Try me. I mean, try whatever else you want to, and then you try me. And then he says, from deep within will flow rivers of living water. John says, by this he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who those who trusted Jesus would receive. From deep within, the old King James says, the old King James says, out of your belly, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Now, what's your belly? Well, your belly is the deepest part of you. It's the part where you can't fake it. You can manage your face. You notice that about people? We come to churches and we all learn to manage our faces to make people think we're doing okay. We're happy. But your belly, the, the Greek word for it is koilia. We get our word colitis from that. Where you carry stress. Where you are empty or scared. What would it be like to be flowing with living waters? Core of your being. Even in our day, 
Even physically, to have a strong core, that's a big deal. Anybody ever see any ads for abs on TV? Why do we all want great abs? To have sleek, sexy abs. That is salvation in our culture, isn't it? That's where we worship at the house of abs. Okay? Um, turn to the person next to you real fast and just show them your abs. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't. Some of you, intriguing idea. Sitting next to an attractive stranger here. Take a look. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, that place, way down deep inside, where you know your soul. Jesus says, now out of there can flow... And let's talk about this a little bit. Rivers of living water. What's that about? You know, about 150 times in the Bible, this image of rivers or streams or water is used. And it's an image of grace or of life. Just to be really alive. The Bible, of course, is written in a desert country, very different from this part of the world. And so you see these statements in the Bible. A river runs through it in the Bible. A river runs through it. In the Garden of Eden, we don't know a lot about the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.10, we're told, and a river ran through the Garden of Eden, watering the garden. Now see, that's a picture of God's grace bringing life to the earth. That's what God wants to do. Every living thing lives by water, lives by a gift, lives by grace. This psalmist says in another Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. You know, that's the grace of God in the life of real people. Or, Psalmist says, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water. And the image you have to have here is, this is not, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, not real far from here. And, uh, um, you know, there would be woods and streams and little deers like Bambi's wandering around. That's not the picture in this song. This is the desert. The wadis have all dried up. This is a creature that's going to die. It doesn't find water. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul cries out for you, O God. If I don't make connection with God, if I don't get some power to run my life off of that's deeper than just me, I'm going to die. You look at the Bible. There is a river that runs all the way through it to the very last chapter. Revelation 22. I love this passage. Um, John says... Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Now listen. As clear as crystal. This is pure, unadulterated, uninterrupted life. Flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's Jesus. It's now available. Down the middle of the great street of the city. That's good news. Because if it's in the middle of the city, that means it's accessible. That means you, whoever you are, you can have it whenever you want it. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Remember, that was way back in Genesis. We are back in the Garden of Eden. We are back with life redeemed, restored. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 12 crops, 12 tribes of Israel. This is the people of God's taking care of his people. We get that. And then one more line. And the leaves of the tree. Yeah, it's you and me. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Let me ask you a question. Could the nations use a little healing today? Could Libya maybe use a little healing today? Or Egypt? Or Japan, or Chicago, 
See, God's plan is to bring healing for the nations. But not through economic or political legislation or educational programs, through you. This is not about getting some little thing called your spiritual life in order. This is about living in the flow of the Spirit from one moment to the next and having grace flow through you to other people and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So here's a question. What if Jesus is right? What if the Spirit of God is like a river flowing all the time? Like right now. And in a sense, what if Spiritual life just comes down to this. Paul puts it like this. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Don't quench the Spirit. Just don't quench the Spirit. The Spirit's at work, wants to be at work in you to give you grace, to let you know that you are loved, guided, empowered, forgiven from one moment to the next. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Or, to put it positively, keep in step with the Spirit. Now, we'll need help in this. We'll need each other. We'll need, because we're bodies and we have habits, well, spiritual disciplines will help us. But in one sense, it's just it's not rocket science. Just be surrendered to the Spirit. What's that look like? Give you a little picture of this, but you'll know in your life. Um, every year between Christmas and New Year's, Nancy and I have dinner with two other couples. They're some of our best friends. It's always a highlight. So we were doing this one time, and at one point I was talking about me, and Nancy gave my hand a little squeeze. Nobody else could see this, just me. There was a little signal. John, you're talking too much. Give someone else a turn. We had not worked out this signal before, this squeeze play. It was just spontaneous. And my immediate thought was, I don't like the squeeze play. I think what I was saying about me is really interesting. I think Nancy's being overly directive and bossy. Now, here's the biggest problem. Am I the only one to ever do something like this? Like none of you all ever have this kind of experience? This is the biggest problem. After dinner was over, I didn't go back and say anything to Nancy about that. I just decided, without even putting it into these words internally, I would rather avoid a potentially unpleasant conversation with my wife and the pain of learning something maybe about myself than actually honor my spouse and listen to the Spirit. And see, when I did that, when I chose not to go back and talk with her, just to that extent, in that area of my life, see, I was quenching the Spirit. I was not listening to the Spirit. Again, I didn't make the choice that deliberate, but it was a choice on my part. And then I'm out of the flow. And you all know what that's like. And then the next day I was talking to a good friend of mine about our marriages and our families and the deal from last night, the squeeze play came up and immediately I knew I've got to talk to my wife about the squeeze play. I have to do that. Immediately I knew that. So when I leave here and go back to California today, I'll probably sit down with Nance. <laughs> no, we talked about it way back. There's a really good talk about who do we want to be? What kind of marriage do we want to have? And then, and then I'm back in the flow of the spirit. And now that goes on in your life and my life all the time with our words, with the way that we look at people, in our thoughts. See, from moment to moment to moment, I am keeping in step with the Spirit or I am quenching the Spirit all the time. 
And the goal is, how do I, with God's help, more and more and more learn to live in the flow of the Spirit? Because that is the only way to live with rivers of living water running through your belly. And we think that those rivers of living water will come if I get rich enough or successful enough or powerful enough or secure enough or attractive enough or healthy enough. And, of course, it just keeps not working. That's why Jesus says, go ahead down those roads as far as you want to, but you'll still be thirsty. You get thirsty enough, you come to me. And we'll do life together from one moment to the next. And then out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. And here's another observation. That flow, that life, will look a little different in you than it does anybody else because spiritual growth is handcrafted not mass-produced. Spiritual growth, disciples of Jesus, are handcrafted, not mass-produced. And I love this, but a lot of times those of us that lead churches get kind of messed up on this because churches have a lot of people, and so churches will try to do spiritual growth on the assembly line. And it doesn't work because every living creature is a little different. Parents learn about this. Before I had any kids, I had this idea in my mind. When my children arrive, they will be blank pieces of paper on which I can write whatever I want. They will be pliable clay that I can mold into any shape that I want to at all. I can treat them all exactly the same way. They'll all be motivated the same, punish them the same way. That was my idea. What corrects that idea in parents' minds? Actually having children. It's reality. Now, our great model for this is God. You think about this. You go through the Bible. God always knows what each individual person needs. I love this about God. He never, in the Bible, so why do we do it? He never treats two people exactly alike. He gives to each what they need when they need it. He has Abraham take a walk, Elijah take a nap, Joshua take a lap, and Adam take the rap. He gives Moses a 40-year timeout. He gives David a harp and a dance. He gives Paul a pen and a scroll. He wrestles with a guy named Jacob. He argues with a man named Job. He whispers to Elijah. He warns Cain. He comforts a woman named Hagar. He gives to Aaron an altar. He gives to a woman named Miriam this song. He gives to a frightened man named Gideon a fleece. He gives to a confused man named Peter a name. He gives to a leader named Elisha a mantle. Jesus is very stern with the self satisfied rich young ruler. He's very tender with this shame-based woman caught in adultery. He is very challenging to his fearful disciples. He is blistering with the callous scribes. He is gentle with the little children. He is gracious with the guilty thief on the cross. God never grows two people the same way. God is a handcrafter, not a mass producer. And now, now it's your turn. It's kind of amazing. God's existed through all eternity, but he has never before experienced a relationship with you. And the problem many people face when it comes to spiritual growth is they listen to someone else they think of as the expert, maybe a writer or a pastor or speaker or something, talk about what he does, and they think that's what they are supposed to do. And when it doesn't work for them because they're a different person, they feel guilty and inadequate, and they often just give up. Okay? God has a plan for who he wants you to be, but it will not look exactly like his plan for anybody else, which means it will require freedom and exploration for me to learn how God wants to grow me. 
For example, um, my wife, Nancy, hates to write in a journal. And we have been sometimes at places where journaling is a big deal. Somewhere, journal went from being a noun to being a verb. And like, you've got to have a journal and write in it. And she would buy a journal because she would feel guilty after a while. And she would make an entry for a day or two days. And then she wouldn't write in it again. And there'd be this gap of days or weeks or months or years. And then she'd say to me, what, like, what if I die and somebody gets my journal and they see how long the gap is? It'd be embarrassing. I said, well, you know, you'll be dead, so it doesn't really matter. You know, or you could just buy a second journal and write see other journal in it. And then, you know, they'll think you're okay. Now, just show of hands. It's really interesting when I talk to folks about this because journaling has become such a big deal. And there's like this little secret going on. How many of you, show of hands on this one, if you're really honest about it, would say, I really kind of don't like to write in a journal. Just raise your hand and keep them up real high, would you? Raise your hand up. Now look around the room for a second at all these hands of people who don't like the journal. No wonder Orland Park's going to hell. I want to give you a thought. This may be the whole reason why God brought you here this weekend. You may have never thought this thought before, but this could be liberating for you. If you think about this, Jesus never journaled. Isn't that unbelievable? Like, you go through the Bible. Moses, Abraham, Peter, Ruth. Sarah, it's filled with people who loved God, who fought sin, who pursued virtue, who wanted to live in the kingdom, who loved the Bible, and they never went to a stationery store and bought a little leather-bound book and made entries in it every day. Now, if writing in a journal helps you grow spiritually, by all means, get a journal and write in it. If it doesn't help you to grow spiritually, don't do it. And whatever you do... Don't feel guilty about whether or not you are writing in a little journal. You have more important things to feel guilty about. Okay? And I really am serious about that. Guilt, the capacity for guilt to be convicted by the Spirit when I get out of the flow, that's a really important thing. It's painful, but it's a great gift. Thank God we have the capacity for guilt. When it works right, it leads us to repentance and back into life. But we have, we have somehow drifted in this situation in churches where people can go year after year in the church and there's a world full of people where 30,000 children die of malnutrition or poverty every day. And we got money, but I don't feel guilty about that. Where there's racial breakdown in our society that's just destroying people. But I don't feel guilty about that. And I feel guilty about whether or not I'm writing in a little journal. You know... Save your guilt for what's really worth feeling guilty about. For being led into becoming the person God wants me to be. And the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. Spiritual growth is handcrafted, not mass-produced. There's this um, outfit in my hometown, Rockford, Illinois, has developed a spiritual growth tool called Monvi. Part of what it does is help you. You just go online, and for a couple of minutes, you do this kind of fun assessment thing, and then find out, like based on my wiring, my temperament, my season of life, my spiritual pathway, my signature sin. Um, how does somebody wired up like me grow? Because it'll look different for me than it does for you. But another observation about how spiritual growth works that's real important. God's desire is to create the best version of you, not to turn you into somebody else. 
you will always be you. A growing, flourishing, God-honoring you. Or a dark, sinful, God-defying you. But a lot of us get in trouble because we think, if I grow spiritually, I'll become like, like that person over there. Some friends of ours had a donor named Shauna who was a classic strong-willed child. Anybody here ever been around a strong-willed kid? Um, when she was four, she kept trying to go AWOL on her trike. Her mom couldn't rein her in. So her mom finally said, look, Shauna, there's a tree here. There's a driveway there. Here's a sidewalk. You can ride your trike on this sidewalk. You can't go past them. If you go past either one of these, I'll come out and spank you. I'm going to go back in the house. We've got to fix the window. I will be watching you. Stay in between them because if you go beyond them, you will be spanked. Shauna backed up to her mom, pointed to her spanking zone and said, well, you better spank me now because I've got places to go. Okay. Now, would it surprise you to learn that when Shauna grew up, she had formidable leadership capacities and an indomitable drive? And she always will, because that's who God made her to be. And she can yield them to God, but will never be, you know, you have been wired up by God, and, and with some of you, there's this, like this hard-charging leadership drive. Some of you are really extroverted and always putting your foot in the, your mouth, and, and you think to yourself, man, I'd be more spiritual if I was just an introverted, silent type. You will never be that. Many of us wish that you would, but you will never be that. And, of course, in God's eyes, that's a real good thing because you're going to bring life and joy and you know, but we get so goofed up on this and and either we envy other people and think, you know, they're more spiritual and so I feel inadequate or we judge them and think, you know, if I'm an extrovert and you're an introvert, I'll think, well, man, don't you love people? Don't you want to be with them? Or when it comes to prayer, I'll, I'll watch you be able to go away for long stretches in solitude and think I can't. And then I think, you, you know, you will always be you. God's plan is not to turn you into somebody else. It's to turn you into God's best version of you. And so if something like Mavi can help you get a grip on how does somebody with my wiring, my temperament, my signature sin, my spiritual pathway, in my season of life, with my responsibilities, how do I pursue connection with God and spiritual growth? If that help you, man, you know, you can do that through this church. That'd be great. Last observation. This life with rivers of living water flowing through your belly is available to you right now. There's only one requirement for it. Jesus has quite a lot to say about it. He talk also about life in the kingdom. The kingdom is worth wanting more than anything else. It's life in the presence and power of God, in the flow of the Spirit. Some time ago now, my wife said she wanted to have a talk. She pulled me into our bedroom, closed the door so the kids couldn't hear, said she had some concerns to walk through, and then she brought out a list. I was not happy to see the list. Now, if she were here, she would tell you that it wasn't a list. It was just an index card. But it had numbers on it. And she is not here, so it was a list. And, and she started to kind of walk through stuff. She said, you know, when our marriage is at its best, I feel like um, we know about each other equally. And you'll ask me questions about how my day went and who I was with and you know me, and I know you and your world. And lately it's been feeling like that value is kind of slipping. Like I know about your world, but you don't know so much about mine. And she said, 
when our marriage is at its best, I feel like we partner together mutually. And we each serve each other. And she reminded me early on in our marriage when our kids were real little, she had to kind of walk me through the servanthood thing. She said, you know, John, when you just serve around the house, um, like if I see you vacuuming the rug spontaneously, I actually feel kind of attracted to you. If, if you empty the dishwasher just without being asked, I get romantic feelings towards you. If I see you bathing our little kids, I feel like physical desire for you. I used to bathe those children three and four times a day. <laughs> come home at 11 o'clock at night. Kids, get out of bed. Get in the bathtub. Nance, come here. Look, quick. There they are. So, you know, she kind of reminded me that. said, I feel like when our marriage is at its best, you know, we, we're equally serving and submitted and and I feel like that value has been slipping, like, you know, you're so busy all the time. And when our marriage is at its best, I feel like you bring kind of a lightness and a joy and a spontaneity to it. And I feel like that's been kind of slipping. And I said to her, Nancy, I understand what you're saying. Like, I get it. I get it. But I need you to know, I feel like I got so many issues. I got so many questions I don't know how to answer, problems I don't know how many to solve, obligations that I can just feel kind of weighing me down at work and so and it's like it's in my face all the time. So I get what you're saying. I kind of miss that guy too. I just need you to know I'm doing the best I can. And, and then immediately she said, no, you're not. And she wasn't supposed to say that. Nobody's supposed to say If you say you're doing the best you can, they're just supposed to say, well, yeah, you got me there. But she walked through some stuff I'd said I could do and that I wasn't doing. She said, no, you're not. And I knew she was right. I didn't tell her she was right because my spiritual gift is pouting. And so I did that for the next several days. <laughs> But the question that kind of emerged was, John, what is it that you really want? And what I realized was, I think I want to do well, to succeed, you know, from when I'm a little kid, to get good grades, to please my parents. That... But what I really want is this life, what, you, what you're thirsty for, rivers of living water. And then I thought, you know, right now I'm 53 years old. I can't wait. You can't wait anymore. And then see the thought, God doesn't want you to wait. This is the offer. It's just life. Just one requirement, which is an intrinsic one. You just have to want this life with Jesus more than you want anything else. Because if you want something else more, inevitably your mind and your heart will get all wrapped up around it. And so you just have to be willing in this moment, just one moment at a time. All right, Jesus, being with you to let go of this little project of my life and to be with you is what I choose in this moment. And then you do life that way. And rivers of living water can really flow. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. We are a thirsty people. We lay our thirst before you now. We place our needs and our desires before you now. We acknowledge that all that we really desire can finally only be found in you. 
We all carry with us, God, this ache to matter. To make a difference. To live a life worth living. And somehow we get sidetracked into leading other lives. So God, now we confess our sin, our busyness. We ask you to remake us. To send your Holy Spirit once again. To make us alive. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.